0: Um, and for the support that this church has been over the years for the Counseling Center. I've been involved since day one, and actually I can't count, Kurt, it's actually 34 years. Um, But I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share about some things that I think people might be going through at this time in our culture. It's been quite a while since I've preached anywhere. I, I was trying to think through last night, how long it's been, and it's been several months B.C. And I know some of you are probably thinking, he's better preserved than what I thought for somebody that old. Um, I meant before COVID. At least I hope some of you are saying he's better preserved than what I thought. If you're not, I'm really in bad shape. Probably this week and next week, uh, there will be times when I will refer to Um, some situation that I've been working with, people, I want you to know from the very outset, for those (laughs) who I may have counseled, or for those who um, I haven't, I will disguise it. It'll be uh, several different people, and I typically would pick somebody from out of the province. Okay, So I just want you to know that. But sometimes I use it as an example, as a way of fleshing out uh, some of the concepts that I'm trying to share. So, welcome to Good Grief. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron. Um, I think, it, and I didn't pick the title, I think it was Charlie Brown that must have picked it. <laughs> grief never feels good. Let's face it, it just doesn't. However, I want to suggest and where I want to go with this between this week and next week is that it can be very beneficial to us if we view it as an opportunity for personal spiritual growth. C.S. Lewis made the comment, he said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain." It is his megaphone to rouse a dead world. My rationale for choosing this topic is the climate that we're living in right now. The endless COVID news, are you tired of it yet? Is now quite often including lots of comments about the fact that people are really struggling with mental health issues, particularly depression and so they're saying telling us that the proliferation of depression is just going rampant and that we it's spreading as much as fast as the virus itself is spreading i want you to know i don't personally believe that but what i do believe however is that the condition of many people now is that they're grieving and perhaps on their way to depression, but they're grieving. And that's what we're going to talk about is grief. My concern is that followers of Christ, are some are on the same path. And it could be avoided. In order for real spiritual growth to happen, it's necessary that we deal not just with the symptoms but the underlying cause. Our tendency is to relieve the pain. So I'm going to set this up this week, and then we'll talk about the actual working out of grief next week. With that in mind, I'd like to share some thoughts on, from Jeremiah that was read. Thank you. Um, I want to say from the outset that this book is a very difficult one to deal with simply because it's not in chronological order. And that makes it difficult. And in order for us to get the sometimes the intent of the message in Jeremiah, we have to go back and look at the history of it. The passage that was read already is, when we look at the history of it, The southern nation of Judah was intact. The northern kingdom had been taken into captivity in 722 B.C. The advantage of looking back is that you and I, from our looking back in history, we know the dates and what happened. The events of Jeremiah's message that was read probably happens between the time that the northern kingdom went into captivity and the southern kingdom went into captivity, and he's in the south. A young fellow by the name of Josiah comes to the throne. He becomes the king of Judah. And his reign was one of seeking after God. 2nd Chronicles 34 tells us that in the 12th year of his reign, he initiates some sweeping reforms to the country and the religion. And so under his monarchy, he as it says in 2nd Kings 23, Neither before or after Josiah was there a king like him, who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, in accordance with all of the law of Moses. Under his monarchy, the land was cleansed of idol worship he had taken, that had taken over the country, it had taken over the north, that's part of the reason that they went into captivity, but didn't spur the southern kingdom to get rid of it. They just continued on. So the exact chronology of how it unfolded, we're not sure. However, the initial purging of the land involved eliminating access to all of the foreign gods that were being worshipped in Judah, including divination, magic. Some had even swept, had crept into the temple itself. The reforms involved that that Josiah instituted included the destruction of the physical representations of the gods, the places of worship, and also included the people that were involved in it. For example, it included the execution of priests as well as male and female prostitutes that were part of that system of worship. Though there had been purges of the land in the past, and pretty fairly good ones. None were as complete as what this one was. And part of the reason is that Josiah sent people into the northern kingdom and did some purging there as well because Assyria was, who was holding them in captivity, was becoming weaker. And so it was the most extensive, the most complete that had ever taken place. When that was... Near the end, Josiah turned his attention then to Jerusalem, and he ordered that the temple be cleaned out. In the process of doing that, they found the law book, the book of the law, probably some form of the book of Deuteronomy, and they found it, started to read it, realized that they had drifted even further away from the Lord than what they hadn't thought and so they cleansed the temple, cleansed all of the utensils and all of the paraphernalia that they needed for their system of worship. And then Josiah commanded that the, the Passover be celebrated. It was a huge national celebration. Second Chronicles 35.18 says the Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. That would have been about 400 years before And none of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah with the priests, the Levites, all of Judah, and even some of the people from Jerusalem came down. Let me give you an example of what this celebration looked like. The sacrifices, there were 37,600 sheep were sacrificed. 3,800 bulls were sacrificed. Doesn't matter how you look at it, that's a lot of blood a lot of sacrificing, and it was a huge celebration. Sometime, very shortly thereafter, Jeremiah, this passage of Jeremiah, he delivers his sermon, probably his first one, but we can't be absolutely certain. More accurately, I would suggest that he's a delir- delivering a message from God because that's what the passage says. So God said. And the topic is idolatry. There's some discussion among scholars as to whether or not this sermon, this passage happened before or after the Reformation. I tend to think it was after, and I'll tell you my reasons, not saying that every I'm right? Although, obviously, I believe I am. <laughs> to preach this sermon before, one, before the Reformation, one would expect sort of a, a casual mention of his role in it. In other words, if you look at Kings and Chronicles, because all of the stuff that happens during the Reformation is found in Kings and found in Chronicles, and you would think that his name would be pop up somewhere, particularly since he wrote Kings. (laughs) You think he might have said, you know, there's this guy named Jeremiah, this is what he did. (coughs) Excuse me. And Ezra, who writes Chronicles, didn't mind mentioning his name in the book of Ezra, so I would have thought that he would have mentioned Jeremiah at least once in Chronicles, but there's no mention. That's what makes me think it happened after. To preach this sermon before the reform, one would expect that the celebration of the Passover would have been a great celebration for Jeremiah as well. I mean, here's a guy that's saying, Come on, you've got to return to the Lord. They've just returned, they've celebrated the Passover. He doesn't mention that. We don't get that incline, that, uh, even a hint of that happening. To preach, one, pre- preach this sermon before the reform, one would expect a deeper sense of repentance, and that probably would have made this sermon unnecessary. To preach the sermon after the reform, one would anticipate, in other words, they've just gone through this big reformation, they've just celebrated the Passover like they've never celebrated it before for at least 400 years, and then Jeremiah gets up and preaches Again, shares a message from God that you need to abandon your idolatry. From their perspective, they would have said, Well, hey, Jeremiah, you know, we just did that, buddy. Like, where you been? That doesn't happen, except that nobody responds. Nobody responds positively to him. And one of the things that Jeremiah is known, if you talk to anybody who's read any books about Jeremiah at all, he's always referred to as the weeping prophet. Can you imagine preaching a sermon like we just heard and <laughs> nobody responds and God's told him to tell look Jeremiah, this is what I want you to say. Yeah, I, I suspect that would make him a little sad. <laughs> One would anticipate the reaction of the people as being um, you know, what do you think, we just we just did. This is exactly what happened. And so, in fact, no other... If you read through the book of Jeremiah, if you've ever read it, and I would encourage you to do it, because I'm not sure that there's any other prophet, I don't think any other prophet, any other writer of Scripture, is as candid about his struggles <laughs> with following the Lord. I really don't. He, he talks, I mean, he says some of the things that I would go... Mm, You know, he calls God a deceptive stream. Um, He really knew. He had a relationship with God that probably many of us would not have. God is bringing a lawsuit here. That's the terminology in the Hebrew. It's to contend or bring a lawsuit against. But it's against my people. His introduction... Invites the listener to look around. He says, Take a look. Go from west to east. That's the Cyprus and Qatar. I mean, he says, Have you ever seen anything like this where a nation has changed gods? I mean, the reality of life is that in the ancient Near East at that time, nations didn't change gods. There was an infiltration of foreign gods, perhaps, into their culture. And many gods, many nations would add these gods to their vast array of gods that they already had. And sometimes they would change the name of the god because it fit into their culture better. But the concept of a nation actually exchanging its gods for another foreign god is a foreign, It's really a foreign idea in ancient Near East. So when God makes this statement, it's pretty radical. His, he's, he's talking about Idolatry. And he uses a word picture. In other words, he uses a physical example to explain a spiritual reality. He, he gives us the, the example he uses is water. The picture is brilliant <laughs> because water is an absolute necessity for physical existence, for physical life everywhere in the world, and it's timeless. We still need it. You see, in Scripture, God talks about thirst a lot. We're all aware of physical thirst. However, we also have a spiritual thirst that we are often less aware of. And God appeals to us on the basis of that thirst We've all heard the analogy of the empty hole in our soul. That thirst, that hunger for God. Just a couple of verses. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me. He doesn't prove we're thirsty because he knows we are. And some of us actually begin to get in touch with that at some point in our life. Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. Psalm 63: "O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land. Where there is no water, I love the verse in, Je- in John chapter seven, verse thirty-seven. Jesus, um, in the last day of the feast of tabernacles, for six, for the, for for all of the days before that, it's like seven, eight days long. They bring in a water offering, a big jugs of water, and they pour it out as an offering to God, thanking Him for the way that He provided for their physical thirst during the uh, Exodus. On the last day, they don't bring one in. That's when Jesus gets up. (laughs) And with a loud voice, he says, and I'll read the verse. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Really? You don't have any water. He's the water. That's what he's getting at. He offers himself as a water of life. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll know that water management in Israel is a big deal. They're really, really good at it, but the land in many areas is fairly arid, but you give it a little bit of water, it'll grow like almost anything you want. And so God says that there are options to satisfy your thirst. There's one fountain and lots of cisterns. Now, cisterns were dug out of the hillside. They would dig out a dugout, to use Saskatchewan terminology, and they would line the inside of it with lime glop that was like a plaster, and then they would direct water into that and then channel it off when they needed it for crops or for their flocks. The question really is, that God is challenging His people with, is where do you choose to satisfy your life? On what are you dependent for life? And the word life in Scripture, throughout Scripture, from one end to the other, can be used for physical life, but it also can be used for soul life. And what I mean by that is where it can refer to value Worth, importance, identity, or self-esteem. When Christ offers himself as life, he's offering us life for eternity, but he's also offering us life for the present. So he makes a comparison. In other words, he says there are options, I admit that, but there's the Lord... Or their cisterns, they both have water, and they both will sustain physical life. But the Lord identifies Himself as the fountain or the spring, as compared to the cisterns. This is living, clean water, fresh water. This is still stagnant, stagnant, and perhaps even polluted. You know, animals sometimes will drink out of it. One fountain, lots of cisterns. Fountain is God created. Cisterns are man-made. No control over the placement of the fountain. That's God's choice. But I do have choice over the cisterns that I and the location and the size of the cisterns that I drink satisfy my thirst at. He's totally dependable. These let you down. When the heat's on, lots of times these are empty. You see, this the historical setting is what I think makes this passage of Scripture so alive, so important, so vital for all of us to hear. It's confusing, especially to us as hearers today and even at that point, because it seems like they had returned to the Lord. They had done everything that it would appear was necessary to return to the Lord. However, the return was only behavioral that's the problem they did everything right but they they didn't they didn't it wasn't heartfelt is it possible for you or i to be in the same boat could i my relationship with the lord could it deteriorate into something that is only behavioral I'm always amazed at how Jesus talked to people. I'm fascinated with it. He always went to the root issue. He always went down below the surface. He always went to this issue that I'm talking about. Let me give you an exa- some examples. Just This isn't going to be in, in detail, but in Luke chapter 10... Martha and Mary invite him to their house, you know, and he's kind of a package deal, the disciples come with him. But Martha's busy setting the table, getting the meal ready, and Mary's sitting at his feet, listening to him. Martha gets her knickers in a knot. She's all upset, and she comes to Jesus, and she says to Jesus, Why don't you get my lazy sister to help me? I'm paraphrasing. To give me a hand here. What's going on? And what does Jesus say? You know, well, that's not a bad idea, or, you know, don't. He says, Mary's chosen something better. Where was she getting, let's just be critical now, where was she getting her sense of value and worth, her sense of self esteem, or her sense of identity? I'm going to suggest from her gifting of hospitality. Is there anything wrong with hospitality? No. But maybe, maybe it was too important to her. Maybe that's where she got her sense of identity. It wasn't an expression of the life that she had. It was a way of getting life. The rich young man that comes to Jesus. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus basically goes through the Ten Commandments. And at each interval, the guy says, well, I've done that. No, I honestly think Jesus could have argued with them. I really do. Nobody gets through the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were to bring us to Christ. We we can't do it. Jesus doesn't argue with them. What does he do? He says, look, where is this guy getting a sense of value and worth and esteem and importance and respect in his community? Because he's rich. He's got money. (laughs) We... You know, it was always a problem. It always has been a problem. You read other passages of Scripture. Don't pay attention just to, the, to these people because they got lots of money. Look at it. Money can generate respect and admiration. I mean, we actually think people with money are always nicer people. <laughs> Not necessarily, they might be. John chapter 5. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search and study the scriptures diligently diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. In other words, I can have lots of education, lots of knowledge of the scriptures, know the Bible inside out and backwards, and still feel more secure in that knowledge than I am in my relationship with him. When I first started to look at this, I don't know how long ago. It was a long time ago, probably 30 years close to it. I was preaching one day, not unlike, you know, it was a smaller church than this. But I'm preaching one day, and I looked out, and I could, you, you know, I, I could see more than their eyes. I feel like I'm preaching to a bunch of bandits here. And people, were, you know, they had that glazed look, if you've ever spoken to people or, you know, and they glaze over, and, go on. and I could feel, literally, as I tuned into myself, I could feel my sense of value and worth and self-esteem as a man draining out onto the platform. You know what I did? I cracked a joke, and everybody laughed. And my sense of value and worth and self-esteem increased. Where was I getting my sense of value, and worth, and self-esteem from? From, my, from people who responded to me cracking a joke, I did it because it's easy for me to do. You see, there's nothing wrong with humor in a, in a sermon, or a speech, or anything else. I'm not saying that. It's good. But it depends on why I do it. And I didn't need the Lord at that moment in time All I needed was a good sense of humor. Is that making sense? You see, that's what Jesus is getting, or God's getting at here in Jeremiah chapter 2. The issue is where, what, to what do we look for our sense of value and worth and self-esteem? Do we look to him or do we look to all of the cisterns that our society offers? And I'm going to, I don't think, I'm, I'm almost certain there is nobody that drinks at the Fountain of Living Waters exclusively all the time. I don't. And the reason I say that is because when I'm drinking at the Fountain of Living Waters exclusively, all the time, I'm going to be perfect, and I ain't there yet. And I'm not going to be there until I see him face to face. So, is it just for those people way back in Jeremiah's time? No, I think it's for us, and I think it's for everyone. Not just those who don't know the Lord. Jeremiah saw all of this. The reformation that had taken place. And he's alarmed. He's concerned about the condition of his people because God drew his attention to it. This is going to tie into what I want to talk about next week. It's almost too much to do in one week, and so I split it up. But I would encourage you, if you're planning on on watching next week or you've had enough, take a look, ask the Lord, have have a coffee with the Lord this week and ask him, where am I satisfying my thirst that's inappropriate? There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it any more than there's something wrong with celebrating the Passover or using humor in in a sermon. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is I'm dependent on that I'm looking to something else other than Christ. And he's a jealous God. He, doesn't want, he wants us to be radically, totally, absolutely dependent on him. Because it's going to make a difference if I'm dependent on him in terms of how I manage and handle life. So I would encourage you to do that. If you are not a believer and you happen to be watching the stream of this. What do cisterns look like? They probably look like a bucket list. If I do this, 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 and this, then I'm going to feel good about me. I remember my parents came to Christ about a year and a half, two years before me. (coughs) Excuse me and and i was talking to them at one point hadn't made my commitment yet and they said what you know what you need is jesus and i go yeah, i don't think so i got i'm 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 i go i got something to do on sunday morning i go cycling what i didn't get was that i was looking for life in all the wrong places And some people out there who don't know the Lord, that's what you're doing. And you look to those things when when you want to feel better about yourself, when you want to relieve pain, that's what you go to as opposed to going to Him. For those of you who do know the Lord, which is probably the vast majority, I'd say ask the Lord. He knows what cisterns you've been drinking at. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have a relationship with the creator and the king of the whole universe. Thank you that that relationship is simply because we're trusting you. Simply because we have what Jesus accomplished on the Calvary for us. And we have claimed that. We're grateful for that. And we always will be. But Lord, when we're honest, sometimes we don't have the time for you that we should. We look to other sources of life, of value, of worth, of self-esteem, of identity, other than you. Whether it's the title before our name or the letters after our name or our money or whatever else that we've been mentioning. Lord, we don't want to be that way. We recognize that as long as we're in this world we're probably still we're going to keep doing it but we don't want to we want to be de- totally dependent on you so that you can use us in ways that you couldn't you can't otherwise. So Father, I pray that you would speak to each one of us, draw our attention to those things that you want to address in our lives individually. And I ask it for Jesus sake. Amen.